Welcome to the Center for Thomistic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Thomas Ball, an independent scholar, giving a talk titled The Good, the Bad, and the Sinful, Fine Lines in Gray Areas in the Extended Writings of Anselm of Canterbury. And without further ado, our podcast. Thank you, and uh, thank you to Tom for inviting me, and of course the entire center for so generously hosting me. Uh, the topic today is the good, the bad, and the sinful, fine lines and gray areas in the extended writings of Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, as some of you will no doubt be disappointed to learn, it is not the purpose of this paper to elucidate Anselm's conception of good ethical action. Rather, how ethical truths can be discerned will be discussed, with the foibles and pitfalls of each, appropriate, uh, of each approach briefly considered. Broadly, Anselm provides us with three categories. The innate, including reason and rational discernment. The empirical, including the senses and perception. And the revealed, most notably the scriptures. Between these three, Anselm says, it ought to be possible for each individual to know quite precisely how they ought to live their life, assuming, of course, that they are not led astray. The role of grace, in and of itself a crucial element to an action being truly good, will be similarly examined, not as an instrumental factor, but in terms of the impossibility of knowing, as a human, whether your actions embody the grace of God. Epistemic humility will be highlighted as a consistent theme across Anselm's ethical writings, and its role in the good life of the individual will be briefly discussed. Lastly, Anselm's prayer to St. Paul will be analysed as an extended case study. Prior to beginning in earnest, it is important to note that Anselm's ethical philosophy is not self-subsistent. It is embedded in a variety of sources, ranging from prayers and meditations to philosophical treatises and letters. Almost all of these disparate tracts were written with a purpose other than, than ethical exposition in mind, such as clarification of scriptural study or elucidation of monastic obligations. Anselm's ethical writings are also typically related to, and conditioned by, preoccupations that are not in and of themselves ethical. Nonetheless, Careful analysis of these sources reveals a coherent ethical philosophy that exhibits a high degree of, con of consistency and sophistication. The one exception is, of course, a brief account of the virtues, the rectitudes, that comprises but a small part of a larger and more elaborate whole. As a foundation to his ethical thought, Anselm develops a theological anthropology with a clear and concise definition of what it means to be human. Unlike animals, we have the capacity to appreciate higher and lower goods, to engage in verisimilitude, and to rank relative goods such that we can select the appropriate course of action. In the Monologion, he describes this fundamental facet of man's existence as follows. Indeed, for a rational nature to be rational is nothing other than for it to be able to discriminate what is just from what is not just, what is true from what is not true, what is good from what is not good, what is more good, from what is less good, but the ability to make these discriminations is thoroughly useless and superfluous to rational nature unless what it distinguishes it also loves 
or disapproves in accordance with the dictates of correct discrimination. Herefrom, then, we see quite clearly that every rational being exists for the following purpose, that even as by rational discrimination he judges a thing to be more or less good or else to be no good at all, so he might love that thing in proportionately greater or lesser degree or else reject it. Broadly speaking, this is accomplished through reason, with Anselm making it clear that ethical truths, much like other types of truth statements, ought to be self-evident when wisdom and or reason are appropriately applied. As Anselm briefly states in chapter 11 of De Veritate, therefore, unless I am mistaken, we can define truth as rightness perceptible only to the mind, before expanding this more fully in chapter 12. Therefore, if justice is nothing other than rightness, you have the definition of justice. And since we are speaking about the rightness, which is perceptible only to the mind, truth, rightness, and justice are definable in terms of one another. As a result, if someone knows what one of them is, but does not know what the other two are, he can infer from his knowledge of one to a knowledge of the others. In fact, if anyone knows one of them, he, can keep, he cannot keep from knowing the other two. While it is evident from context that Anselm intends this ability to be universal, his letter collection provides numerous examples in which reason is insufficient or can be corrupted. The primary cause of this corruption is typically emotion. As Anselm writes to the monk Henry, but because your mind, under the strain of great emotion, weighs any little good in it, it mistakenly does not for this reason weigh with equal measure the things which counterbalance it. For as often as we propound the many things it would be better to choose, having once set aside all our own cravings, we should consider the weight of all these matters. For if we join the weight of love to the weight of the cause loved, we are without doubt deceived by the things we have to decide upon. Anselm proposes two remedies to this lapse. The first, and most obvious from a monastic perspective, is obedience. A great deal of Anselm's scholarship has been given over to the discussion of his thoughts on obedience, and it is not the intention of the present study to delve into the issue at any great length. However, it is hardly surprising that, when Anselm's ethical thought can be most succinctly summarized as to avoid usurping a will greater than your own, obedience takes pride of place. The most philosophically satisfying example, to me at any rate, is provided in Anselm's letter to Eulalia, abbess of Shaftesbury, and her nuns. You, beloved sisters and daughters of mine, I exhort and admonish to be subject and obedient to your mother, not merely before human eyes, but also before the eyes of God, to whom nothing is hidden. True obedience is when the will of the subordinate so obeys the will of the superior that, wherever the subordinate may be, she wishes that she knows the superior's wishes, as long as it is not against the will of God. Your community ought to be a temple of God, and the temple of God is holy. It is worth noting that even within the confines of monastic law, Anselm makes allowances for situations in which individuals may not be forced to be obedient. And while it is far from clear exactly how the subordinate might know that an order was specifically against the will of God, 
No doubt many scenarios will spring to the mind of every reader. Uh, for instance, murder or other foul things. The second and more generally applicable method for counteracting the negative effects on reason of emotion is that of advice. Apart from applying to those outside of a monastic setting, advice as a form of ethical behaviour effectively justifies the exchange of letters and the wisdom of dialectic. Returning briefly to Henry, Therefore, dearest friend, trust more in your friends' advice than in your own deliberation, unless you consider yourself wiser than all of them. You will note, considering yourself wiser than all of them would be a form of usurping a will greater than his own. Even then, though, according to Anselm, advice is not infallible. Quote, Indeed, I find no advice more useful or more universal than that which wisdom advises us, that we do everything with consideration, lest our deed be followed by repentance. Just as this counsel is very wisely given, so it is very truly valid. To whatever degree somebody disregards this, to the same degree he chooses not to rejoice over his deeds, but to rue them. Therefore, if anyone advises you to make use of this counsel, his advice should be listened to no less heedlessly than the advice of him who is to be obeyed by all persons and in all things. Critically for the present study, both of these fall into a complex philosophical niche. The individual can use the tools that have been given to them by God and can still come to the wrong conclusion about what the appropriate course of action might be. That is, unless they cede a degree of their own epistemic certainty and inquire with others to ensure that they have made the right choice. Anselm maintains throughout his broad corpus that scripture contains truth in the objective and philosophical sense. Indeed, in a letter to Basilia, Anselm makes this very plain. In this I perceive your goodwill and Christian intention, for I do not see any reason why you should desire a letter except that you wish to receive from it some sound advice for your soul. Therefore, although the whole of Holy Scripture, if you have it explained to you, teaches you how you ought to live, I, yet I ought not to be miserly and inexorable to your holy petition. It is important to note the caveat Anselm places upon this declamation, that of understanding. Anselm feels that while Scripture embodies the truth, there is no guarantee that every individual can understand the truth it holds, and indeed, Anselm is not beyond asking the occasional king whether they have the staff in hand to aid their interpretation. Once more, the individual seeking answers to how they ought to behave is left with a problem. They may think that they have understood scripture. They may employ their reason and experience in an attempt to understand revealed truth. And, indeed, they may feel that they are doing the right thing as a result, but it is possible that they are mistaken. In De Veritate, Anselm provides two examples illustrating the difficulties of empirical forms of truth. The first, and probably the most famous, challenges the student to ponder how man might be mistaken when the senses do not lie. Similarly, when an unbroken stick, partly in water, partly not, is thought to be broken, or when we think that our sight sees our real faces in a mirror, and when sight and the other senses seem to report to us many things as being other than they really are, the fault is not with the senses, which report what they are able to, since they have received uh, thus to be able. 
Rather, the fault must be attributed to the soul's judgment. Just to intersperse there, that's a really odd phrase that I'm still grappling with. So forgive me for not having a 100% answer to that question. I haven't found it anywhere else in Anselm's writing, but the soul's judgment is just a very peculiar little niche. So if anyone has any insights on that, do please tell me. Um, uh, which does not clearly discern what the senses can and ought to do. I do not think that time need be spent in showing this, since for our purposes it would be more tedious than profitable. Let it suffice to say only that whatever the senses are seen to report, whether they do so as a result of their nature or some other cause, uh, for example, because of a tinted glass, they do what they ought. Therefore, they do what is right and true, and their truth falls within the classification of truth in actions. Of course, this example in and of itself can be solved with reason, and to a lesser degree, experience. However, it provides an important general principle and precursor to Anselm's further examples. You'll note that because it's a truth in action, once again, it can be fallible if applied without wisdom, advice, or any other form of modification. The pragmatic aspects of man acting in an ethical fashion are amongst the most interesting elements of Anselm's ethical philosophy. Anselm has already made two critical distinctions in chapter eight of De Veritate that provide a glimpse of this interaction. The first is the distinction between an action that is done by an ethical agent and an action that occurs to an ethical agent. Quote, so the same thing both ought and ought not to be. It ought to be since it is permitted wisely and well by God, without whose permission it could not have happened. Yet with respect to him by whose evil will it is committed, it ought not to be. In this way then, the Lord Jesus ought not to have undergone death, because he alone among men was innocent, and no one ought to have inflicted death upon him. Nevertheless, he ought to have undergone death, because he wisely and graciously and usefully willed to undergo it. For in many ways the same thing admits in different respects of opposites. This is frequently the case in regard to an action, for instance, a beating. For beating is predictable both of one who gives it, i.e. of an agent, and one who gets it, i.e. of a patient. Hence, in different respects, it can be called both an action and a passion. This example is of particular note as it displays a bad ethical action having a positive effect. Namely, it was wrong for Jesus to be crucified, yet the fact that he was, and therefore sacrificed himself for the greater good of man, was beneficial to potentially all involved. Equally, the opposite can be the case. An action can be just on behalf of the ethical agent that commits that action, and yet unjust towards the ethical agent to whom the act is directed. For Anselm, this distinction is critical, as it allows him to dispense with the problem of evil to some degree. It also indicates that, to Anselm, the reasons for an ethical action are more important than the consequences that it causes. Anselm provides further detail, showing each possibility in turn. Therefore, when the one who gives a beating does so rightly, and the one who gets that beating does so rightly, for example, when a sinner is corrected by someone whose prerogative it is, both aspects of the action are right, because in both respects a beating ought to be. Aren't you glad we live in kinder <laughs> times? And when, on the contrary, 
A just man is beaten by an unjust man. Neither aspect of the action is right, because the just man ought not to get a beating, nor ought the unjust man to give a beating, for in neither respect ought a beating to occur. Although this passage is probably one of the least controversial aspects of his ethical philosophy, the division is necessary for his scheme as a whole. Most importantly, it sets up his next clarification. But when a sinner is beaten by one whose prerogative it is not, then a beating both ought and ought not to be, since the sinner ought to get a beating, but the other man ought not to give the beating, and so the action cannot be denied to be both right and not right. Seemingly, Anselm displays a surprising and uncharacteristic amount of pragmatism in this passage. An action may be both ethically wrong and its intended outcome uh, may be ethically wrong, and yet the end result can still be positive. This separation of the outcome from the intention and the action allows a great deal of ambiguity in day-to-day -day scenarios. Once more, Anselm returns to a conception of epist epistemological uncertainty. From a strictly ethical perspective, it allows Anselm to provide a normative statement about the value of acting in a fashion that the individual believes to be ethically good. The outcome of such an action becomes less significant as, if the individual is ethically good, their actions will have been performed for the right reasons, and at worst will be both good and bad. Quote, but if you consider whether in accordance with the judgment of supernal wisdom and goodness there ought not to be a beating in the one respect only or in both respects, viz. with respect to the agent and with respect to the patient, would you or anyone else dare to deny that such great wisdom and goodness permits ought to be? According to Anselm, we should not question this facet of ethical existence as it equates to questioning God even if it would seem to defy our personal sense of reason, further undermining the epistemic value of human reason when taken in isolation. For the purposes of the current study, grace is something of a fraught subject. On the one hand, Anselm is quite clear that man must receive grace in order for ethically action to be truly good. On the other hand, he makes it equally clear that man cannot know whether or not he has received grace from God. The end result is that man must operate under the assumption that if he is ethically good in a temporal sense and fulfills the devotional aspects of his life to the best of his ability, then he will receive God's grace. Although he will always necessarily sometimes be wrong, to assume the opposite would mean that he would be wrong and his actions would never be ethically good. Uh, it is this line of logic that leads to the value of temporal discussions about the manner in which man can be ethically good. This was clearly a matter of much discussion amongst the monks Anselm taught. He writes Bosso as saying in Cadeus Homo, Moreover, you ought to expect of God's grace that if you willingly share those things which you have freely received, you will merit the receiving of higher things to which you have not yet attained. Now, this is not quite the view that Anselm would tend to espouse in and of himself. There's a reason it's Bosso saying this in the dialectic and not Anselm. Uh, but Anselm's most effective summary comes in De Concordia. Yet in regard to those passages in which scripture is seen to invite free choice to right-willing and right-working people, 
Pe- sorry, to right working. People wonder why it invites a man to will rightly and why it condemns him if he is disobedient, seeing that no one can have or receive uprightness unless grace bestows it. We must note the following comparison. Without any cultivation on man's part, the earth produces countless herbs and trees by which human beings are not nourished or by which they are not even killed. But those herbs and trees which are especially necessary for us for nourishing our lives are not produced by the earth apart from seeds and great labor and a farmer. Similarly, without learning and endeavor, human hearts freely germinate, so to speak, thoughts and volitions which are not conducive to salvation or which are even harmful thereto. But without their own kind of seed and without laborious cultivation, human hearts do not at all conceive and germinate those thoughts and volitions without which we do not make progress towards our soul's salvation. This argument is encapsulated by Anselm's analogy of the farmer planting his field. Grace, according to Anselm, can be viewed like seeds falling from heaven. If a farmer has ploughed his field and carefully kept the soil in peak condition, then the seeds are more likely to take root. Indeed, if the farmer continues to water and weed, his crop will be substantial. On the other hand, in the natural state of the land, it is true that single seeds may take root and grow. However, it is far less likely that the crop will come to fruit and that the land will flourish when it is left unattended and without appropriate care. And now, of course, uh, for the eagle-eyed amongst you, that's coming straight from Augustine, in case anyone was wondering. Anselm, in his letters, repeatedly warns his correspondents that they cannot know whether they have maintained a state of grace, nor indeed when they will die, adding a further layer of of, uh, uncertainty to their moral standing. To provide but one brief example from his letter to Odo and Lanzo, for indeed, someone who already judges himself to be among the few should not immediately trust that he is chosen. In fact, since nobody among us knows to, to how few the number of chosen is limited, so nobody knows if he is already among this small number of the chosen, even if he is like one of the few among the many called. Therefore, nobody looking behind him should contemplate how many he outstrips on the road to the celestial country, but continually looking ahead, let him consider anxiously whether he is advancing in the same way as those whose election none of the faithful doubts. Take care, dearest friend, lest the fear of God which you have conceived cool down, but always, as if fanned by continual attention, let it flame daily higher and higher until transformed it lights your way into eternal security. Whether or not man maintains the grace provided by God is pivotal, not only for individual actions but for eternal considerations. And while man is capable of understanding temporal ethics, it is unclear that, without grace, he is capable of comprehending divine justice. As an ethical actor, the anti-consequentialism apparent throughout Anselm's thought begins to become increasingly important. Because we cannot trust, beyond all doubt, our rationality, our senses, our interpretation of the scriptures, or even our ability to maintain God's grace, we must adopt a position of epistemic humility and turn our attentions towards those aspects that we can control, such as our intentions. Beyond that point, we must assume that we are in a position of relative paucity. 
We must assess our senses with our reason, our reason through advice and obedience, the scriptures similarly, and perhaps most importantly, we should prize ethics as a way of compensating for our inevitable lapses in judgment against the fear that we have inadvertently turned away from God's grace. And yet there is a broader point to be made. The necessity for epistemic humility is not a curse, but a paradoxical solution. If we are prepared to admit and act in the full knowledge that our, precon that our perception of the truth is limited, we are less likely to attempt to usurp a will greater than our own, making it easier for us to avoid vices such as pride and willfulness. The saint will not assume that he possesses God's grace and therefore can rest upon his laurels. The wise man will doubt his wisdom in contrast to that of the divine, and the virtuous man will fear that his vices may overcome him. Just as for Anselm, rightness, justice, and truth are intrinsically interrelated, so too our own approach to the truth necessarily requires that we act in such a manner as to maximize rightness and justice. It is at this point that the keen amongst my listeners will notice a distinct change of tone. When I first began this research project, my aim was to stay as far away from Anselm's prayers as possible. Yet, upon reading them once more, I was forced to alter my course somewhat and make allowances for the prayers as an alternative style of philosophical argumentation. While Anselm's language changes, he is, after all, writing with a different rhetorical style and to a distinct audience, his position, as always, remains remarkably consistent. The plaintive tones that he employs and the clearly personal nature of the tract take the usually intellectually remote subject matter and make it surprisingly relatable. In his letter to St. Paul, Anselm sets out the paradox that has run throughout this paper in a slightly different and, if anything, more direct fashion. Faith is presented as a spectrum, necessary for a truly good action, but difficult to maintain and crippling once its certainty is lost. Far from a catch-all, solution, its maintenance can be characterized as part of the problem. But alas, I fall into yet another heavy ill, I thought to get hope through faith, and lo, I see that I have no hold upon faith. I had thought myself to be clothed in this faith, and I know myself to be without it. I was confident that I was concealed in it, and I know myself to be far from it, for faith without works is dead. In truth, dead faith is not faith. He then who has dead faith has no faith. Alas, the fertility of evil works forbids me to have hope, and sterility of good works proves me to be without faith. Alas, the evil I have done, alas, the good I have neglected to do, for if it is necessary that by evil works God should be displeased, which counts for nothing without good works, to please God. If man cannot perform good works without faith, and if faith is not truly faith without good works, Anselm asks, how can man ever hope to escape from the downward, downward spiral of sin? Even the slightest sin would render faith false, leaving truly good ethical action impossible in the future. He even begins to differentiate between good works done, good works left undone, and evil works, a characterization never fully explored or explained elsewhere in his prayers, but not atypical of his broader corpus. In the next part of the prayer, Anselm takes the argument a step further and critically for our current discussion, differentiates between stagnation that might be caused by actions that are not explicitly good, indeed that might be neutral, 
and actions that are explicitly bad or evil. Anselm ties justice to faith in what might be interpreted as a link between faith and the intention behind certain actions. Uh, please forgive the longish quotation, Anselm's prayers are not renowned for their brevity and pith. <laughs> but if the just man lives by faith, whoever has no faith is dead. But those who are sterile in good are dead. Then how much more dead are those who are fertile in evil? For if the tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down as being withered, that which bears bad fruit will, be even, will even more be rooted up as evil. For this is death, not of the flesh, but of the soul. How great and how much worse is it to die that death than to die the death of the flesh? For at the last, all who die in human flesh rise again, but all who die in the spirit rise not. And that death destroys more by taking away a life that perhaps can never be restored than when it takes away life because necessity demands it. It is worse to cease from a life of righteousness through which one loses the life of bliss than to let go of this miserable bodily life. Finally, and much more miserably does he perish who goes forth from the life of the spirit than if it had been preserved. Could, resto could restore the sorry forgive me could restore to the body a better life in place of the life lost and without which it were better not to have been born than he who only loses the life of the body without which nothing prevents the soul from being blessed commentators such as sonnison have emphasized the eudaimonic nature of anselm's ethical philosophy and this prayer proceeds to validate this view Returning to the first example pre presented in this paper, God provides man with reasons such that he might discern between relative goods in order that he might lead a happy life. The temporary unhappiness these choices might cause are juxtaposed against both the misery of eternal damnation and the joy of eternity with the divine. Critically, this changes the emphasis of the discussion from how man might accomplish a specifically good ethical action to how man might lead an acceptably ethical life before the divine. I live this unhappy life. I am dead to that life of blessedness. I live in that which is vile to me, and I am dead to that which is better. I am more dead than alive, and I am worse dead than I shall be when I die in the flesh, for that death will not be evil to me unless the other precede it. The emphasis has been shifted from the temporal to the eternal, from earthly standards of good behavior to standards that can only be fully judged through the justice of the divine. But Anselm does not end the discussion here. Rather, he divides reason and understanding to illustrate how man can be both rational and incapable of behaving in the way he ought. Certainly, neither could I pray, nor did I know how. This was true because I understood that I was cursed by all things, and I did not grieve as if unfeeling. I knew through my rational nature, but I did not understand. Death had made me insensitive. Indeed, I was dead, and as a dead man, I have come to you. It is only now that I have realized that I am dead. The solution Anselm seems to reach speaks directly to the epistemological concerns raised earlier in this paper. A rational nature, while an essential component of Anselm's theological anthropology, is shown to be insufficient in the, in the face of sin, as opposed to ethically bad action. 
Sin seemingly distorts or misuses the rational, changing its focus and direction and preventing true understanding. Understanding then seems to come from a source other than reason alone. Returning to the topics previously discussed, the innate, the empirical and the revealed, while necessary components of ethical decision-making processes are insufficient for attaining true understanding or wisdom. This requires each of these elements, but more so faith. Faith being not a binary state, a switch that can be flicked on and off, but rather functioning as a performative virtue, requiring grace for its perfection. Yet grace is not instrumental in nature, rather it functions in an epistemic capacity, for it does not facilitate action, but understanding. This understanding is not narrow in nature. It is not the understanding required to tackle a single ethical dilemma for which reason may amply suffice by providing truth, justice, and rightness, as Anselm tells us in De Veritate. However, it is precisely what is required to change the trajectory of an entire life. The difference is that of a man who knows facts, but does not understand how they fit together to form a cohesive worldview. And at the risk of derailing a perfectly good paper with a poor joke, I've taken to privately referring to this as the undergraduate essay, Analogy of Grace and Ethics. <laughs> a man devoid of understanding may commit an action that it's a niche joke, may commit an action that is good, he may commit one that is bad, without an understanding of the divine, why would man decide to live a virtuous life on earth? Would his motivations not rather veer towards the animalistic? the lower pleasures? This remains unclear and dependent upon the individual in question. What is certain, however, is that without attaining the requisite level of understanding through faith and ultimately grace, man will lead a sinful life in, in totality. While his temporal actions and standing may appear externally good, his external standing will not measure up to the justice of the divine. Moreover, Anselm's approach and his very demeanour throughout the prayer supports the conclusion of the first part of this paper. Action is less important than attitude, and epistemic humility is key to leading an ethical life as it, and it alone, prevents man from usurping a will greater than his own, that being the justice of the divine. Man must neither view himself as ethical nor unethical. Rather, he must view himself as a sinner seeking salvation through penitence and atonement. Anselm of Canterbury is perhaps best known for three simple words, and although they are often seen in purely devotional terms, it seems clear that they are critical to understanding his epistemology and ethical philosophy. They are, of course, fides quarens intellectum, and while a great deal of space has been dedicated to analysing the fides and the intellectum, perhaps as far as Anselm is concerned, we ought to focus more clearly on the quarens. It is clear that man is possessed of a rational nature which allows him to discern truth and relative goods. Man has experience and advice to guide him away from the worst ravages of his emotions. He is provided with revealed truth in the form of his scriptures. But none of these things equate to understanding, simply facts. Ultimately, therefore, understanding must be sought. It is the task of a temporal lifetime to seek what leads to the eternal. Faith, grace, and the understanding that they bring. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. 
Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Studies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at stthom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot e-d-u slash c-t-s. Thank you.